Hello, my name's Adrian Goldberg. Welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This week, is it time for a Women's Bill of Rights? It's 35 years since the UK ratified the grandly named United Nations Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, thankfully known as CEDAW for short. CEDAW sets out a comprehensive framework for tackling gender inequality. But critics say that because it's never been embedded in a law, unlike the European Convention on Human Rights, it's an inefficient tool for challenging government decisions which disproportionately affect women and girls. While the the UK has become a signatory to it, it still won't do the things that it doesn't want to do. The government will still not do the parts of CEDAW that it's not interested in doing when it doesn't serve its wider agenda. And so while it's important to have these things in writing, we need to see the action follow through. More on this to come. First, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the monthly Byline Times newspaper. It's a great read and an ideal Christmas present. So head over to bylinetimes.com for details of how to subscribe. That's bylinetimes.com. Now, we live in a supposedly equal society, but the gender pay gap is currently 8% in favour of men. There's plenty of evidence showing that government austerity measures disproportionately affected women, while the debate around the murder of Sarah Everard highlighted how harassment, abuse and violence have become normalised. So how would a Women's Bill of Rights make a difference to any of this? We'll be finding out shortly, but first let's hear from Shirley, whose life has been blighted by what you might describe as structural sexism. Born in the 1950s, she was steered away from managerial opportunities when she declared her intention to marry, and she's one of thousands of women who found out far too late that she wouldn't be retiring at 60 because of changes to the retirement age. Shirley's teacher's pension was also contracted out, she says, without her knowledge, which means she's worse off under pension changes introduced in 2016. She suffered personal tragedy as well, and although this can of course affect people of any gender, in Shirley's case the combination of factors means she's had to sell her house to survive. I entered a career in banking after taking A-levels and I got married quite young. I was offered management training by the bank. I got on well there, they liked me. And then when I got married, they they seemed to be worried that I might have children and said they weren't going to offer me the management training anymore. They were quite open about it, actually. So it was an accepted norm that that was what happened. They didn't think discrimination then because that was just how it was. I left banking when I actually had my family. But later on, you decided, having had children, to embark on a new career. I did, yes. Once my children all went to school, I went back to study and then I took a first degree. I then managed to get some part-time employment working in the higher education sector. I was taking a higher degree when I got divorced. I lost out massively financially there because most of our wealth was in pension pots in my ex-husband's name. And in court, the judge said that because my estate pension age was 60, she couldn't award me a share of all these pension pots. So at that point, the judge in 1997 recognises that your husband has got very healthy pension pots, but feels that you have no entitlement to them because you're going to be retiring at 60 anyway and you'll have access to your own pension pots. But two years earlier, 
unbeknownst to you, and apparently unbeknownst to the judge, the law had changed. I didn't know my state pension age had been changed a few years earlier, in 1995, and the government didn't notify me until about 2012. So they notified me then of the two changes. There have been two changes by then, one in 1995 and one in 2011. So three years before my 60th birthday, which is not really notification. In terms of my employment, I did complete my higher degree. I did go into university lecturing, then took the roughly two and a half years teachers' pension contributions I had at the point of divorce. As far as I could, by maxing out the payments I could make, I bought something called past added years. But even so, I've ended up with about half a lifetime's worth of teachers' pension. When I came out of my employment, it was a very sad time for me because my son had died, my eldest son. My returns to work weren't easy. It was really difficult. So just before I was 60, I actually came out of my employment. I then waited till I was 60 to draw my teacher's pension. But I had to think at that point about my mortgage, which was substantial, surviving the next six years financially, and what my future would be in terms of income. So I maxed out the teacher's pension lump sum to help pay some mortgage off, and then I kept some back, so I couldn't pay the mortgage off fully. And then I used that money to survive for the next six years till I knew I could get my state pension as well. I needed to have a buffer because my teacher's pension wasn't sufficient to pay a mortgage and stay afloat. I had some health issues that hit including breast cancer. So it was difficult, really. You discovered then in 2012 that you weren't retiring at the age of 60, which at that point was only three years away, but that the pension age had gone up first to 65. That was the 1995 Act. But then in 2011, your pension age had been increased to 66. So you had very little time to plan for those really significant changes. That's correct, yes. Then, as well, on top of those changes in 2016, there's something called the new pension rules, which change again what you're awarded and what you need to qualify to achieve a state pension. And that has impacted on me personally. One of the changes has involved what's called being contracted out. I didn't know I was contracted out in the teacher's pension scheme and I have a deduction from my state pension. I'm in receipt of it now since September this year. So although you bought back your years of national insurance contributions, because your pension was contracted out, you're ineligible for the full state pension? Yes, even though I've got 49 years national insurance contributions. And you... Ended up having to sell the house? Yes. So I've lost a big share of the wealth from the marriage. And then having rebuilt myself, when I managed to get my higher qualifications and get full-time employment, I've just lost out massively financially. It's been very difficult. The years I bought in the past added years means you pay the national insurance contributions that the employer would have paid as well as what you pay. That has cost me a lot. So really, I wasn't receiving the income I was earning because I was having to invest a lot of it into trying to get the best teacher's pension I could. How did it feel to have to sell your house? Very heart-wrenching, actually, because all my children had lived there with me at some point. 
And my eldest son had lived there with me just before he died. And I was supporting him before he passed away. And had the retirement age remained at 60 for you, presumably you wouldn't have had to do that. You could have kept your home. I might have sold it through choice eventually, mightn't I, to realise my equity. But I wouldn't have felt compelled to have to sell it. What do you think should happen now to you and other 50s women like you? I think we should receive full restitution. I think it's the only fair way forward. We're asking for a return of what we should have had, the money we should have had. And I think that is the fairest outcome, given that this era of women are particularly impacted by the norms and expectations that they've had during the lifetimes, especially the working lifetimes, and the new changes to the rules in 2016 because they are specifically peculiar in their impact to this generation of women. That was Shirley's story. To understand the bigger picture, I've been speaking to Sean Norris, Chief European and Social Affairs Correspondent for Byline Times, and Dr Jocelyn Scutt, a Senior Fellow at the University of Buckingham Law School. In the summer, she compiled a report for the pressure group Cedar in Law after a three-day tribunal which received submissions from a range of interested organisations. Given that we already have an Equality Act and other laws designed to ensure fair treatment, I asked Jocelyn what a Women's Bill of Rights would mean in practice. When in 1986 that convention was ratified, it meant and it means that the government was making a commitment that this country would incorporate into domestic law all the terms, provisions and conditions of CEDAW. So number one, the reality is that the commitment has to be honoured because the government has made that commitment. In terms of the practical reality, getting enshrined in law that women's rights are human rights and human rights are women's rights is a jumping off point. And it's from there that we move on to addressing issues such as the 50s women and the lack of entitlement they're told that they have to proper pension provision. I mean, I would say that it astounds me that courts have not acknowledged that right as existing in the law as it is. Governments do have a commitment to notify women of changes that were happening in relation to age requirements and pension age requirements. And therefore, it would seem to me that women placed in that position do have a legitimate case against the government at the present time. However, we do need CEDAW incorporated into domestic law to make sure that all those rights are acknowledged in law. Then that can be used as a jumping off point for the 50s women, as it can be used for women who've been discriminated against in a range of ways that are not yet incorporated clearly and indisputably in the law as it exists in this country at the present time. Sean, do you think we need a Women's Bill of Rights? I think absolutely. This idea about personhood and women's rights being human rights is something we still struggle to recognise. We still are living with this legacy where women were seen as property, where women were passed as property from father to husband, where women didn't have rights to own their own home. It's only really recently in the 70s even that married women could put their names on mortgages and could take out credit cards without a male person's consent, such as their husband or their father. So 
we're still playing catch up in a lot of ways. And I think sometimes putting something in writing, creating a bill, creating a statement that says women have human rights, women are people too, can be an incredibly powerful instigator for change. But it obviously has to go beyond the statement and beyond the words and become change, become legislative change. And I think one of the big things that we've seen with CEDAW and the Istanbul Convention, as it's otherwise known, is that while the, the UK has become a signatory to it, it still won't do the things that it doesn't want to do. The government will still not do the parts of CEDAW that it's not interested in doing when it doesn't serve its wider agenda. And so while it's important to have these things in writing, we need to see the action follow through. I'm just interested to explore the practical impacts of this, though. The areas you, Sean, would regard as key for the government to address the issue of equality, because in terms of pay, for example, it is illegal to pay men more for the same work as women. There are laws in place to stop harassment, intimidation and violence against women, quite rightly, of course. So I'm just wondering what difference legislation will make to the lives of women rather than practical action. So I think the really key thing is, as you say, we have legislation in place. And in terms of an issue that I'm particularly interested in, which is violence against women and the treatment of women who have endured domestic and sexual violence. So one of the issues is funding. Now, if we have it in law that you have to fund specialist support services for domestic violence victims, then that's something that the Assemble Convention demands. It says that you have to have funding. It has to be properly funded. So if we put that into law, then we would see a huge change because there would be a provision of refuge services for every woman who needed them. At the moment, that is simply not the case. So the Domestic Abuse Bill, which came in earlier this year, is a really important piece of legislation, a very much trumpeted bill, really excellent example of cross-party collaboration in order to try and further the rights of victims and survivors of domestic abuse. But it does not include provision for specialist refuge funding. It simply says that councils have a duty to provide housing for domestic abuse survivors and their children. But that doesn't necessarily have to be specialist and it certainly doesn't have to be single sex, which means some of the issues that women experience when they leave or attempt to leave a violent partner are not being addressed by the law. We need funding for specialist services as per what is asked for in CEDAW. A similar issue is around the treatment of migrant survivors of domestic abuse. Again, there's provision in CEDAW to make sure that women, no matter what their immigration status, can get the urgent support they need to leave a violent relationship and to get the support they need to recover from a violent relationship. Now, currently in the UK, if you have no recourse to public funds, which is a specific immigration status, then you cannot access a lot of the support that you would need to leave a domestic abusive situation. So again, this is where legislation can make a real difference. If in a domestic abuse bill, they had adopted the amendment to ensure support was available for women who have no recourse to public funds, that would be something that would urgently help very, very vulnerable victims to get the support they need to leave and to be safe. And yet we don't have that. So I think legislation has a real part to play because while we do have laws, while it's obviously illegal to assault, abuse, rape, sexually harass um, women or anyone, women, children or men, when it comes to the support that is in place, we need much firmer legislative support and much firmer legislation that actually explicitly funds 
services and explicitly protects those who are most vulnerable. And that's something that we're still missing at the moment and which could be changed by adopting something like CEDAW. So if CEDAW was law rather than simply being a treaty which Britain has signed up to, it would be a benchmark against which other legislation or against which the actions of government could be measured and would empower women to hold government to account through the courts. Yes, and it would go beyond government, of course. It goes to the private sector too, because the private sector has to acknowledge women as persons and women's rights. Back in 1977, I had the support of two of my colleagues, uh, Di Graham and Kerry Hubell, in drafting the Women's Electoral Lobby draft bill on sexual offences, rape and other sexual offences. And in that, incorporated a provision that judges must mandatorily be educated into that new legislative change. Now, interestingly, that was not adopted at the time, but Canada this year has put into law that judges must mandatorily be educated into their sexual offences law and what the provisions are. And this would be a part of the Women's Bill of Rights in the United Kingdom when the Women's Bill of Rights comes into law. Because one of the problems is that laws can exist, but if the judiciary doesn't actually understand what the principles are in CEDAW, or if other parts of the polity have not got a clue as to what CEDAW means, courts are not going to do their job. Just to give you an example of this problem, I was actually just reading a case, which was a judicial review that was run against the Crown Prosecution Service in 1995. Now, in 1991, the House of Lords held at last that rape in marriage is a crime. In 1995, a matter went to the Crown Prosecution Service, which related to a woman, uh, an allegation that the woman had been imposed upon by her husband and partner in terms of anal rape. And the Crown Prosecution Service had decided that that should not proceed under criminal law because family law could deal with it just as well. Now, in my respectful submission, that's a nonsensical position to take because most criminal acts involve tortious acts as well. That is, if somebody is hit on the head by somebody walking down the street by an axe, that would be a criminal act, grievous bodily harm, for example. The state would have to take that on as a criminal matter and the person who was the victim and hopefully survivor of that crime would have a personal action against the person who had attacked them. And we don't say, well, because they could have a tortious action against the person who attacked them, we, the Crown Prosecution Service, are not going to proceed with grievous bodily harm action against the perpetrator. Now, what is utterly shocking is that Sarah Everard was killed, and we can now say murdered. And since then, there have been at least 81 more women killed. But is anybody rising up in demand for this to be acknowledged and recognised apart from women? And the answer, I'm sad to say, is no. When we look at that and we see as another example, the crimes that are mostly not proceeded with, it's flashing. 
criminal assault at home and other forms of domestic violence, and it's rape. Now, each of those are crimes primarily inflicted on women. And the idea that flashing, for example, is not going to be proceeded with because I suppose it's written off, it's not all that important, it shows a lack of perception and understanding on the part of the Crown Prosecution Service, which honestly has to get its act together, just as do, for example, the police who are saying that if a woman approached by a single police officer and she has any apprehension, she should flag down a bus. This is risible. And yet we are being told that this is what women should do or this is what women have to put up with. So to come back to the point, a women's bill of rights is absolutely essential and the government must live up to its commitment in signing and ratifying CEDAW. And that women's bill of rights must incorporate mandatory provisions that the judiciary must have education into what CEDAW means, but it can't stop there. Every single member of parliament should be mandatorily educated into those provisions, as should everybody who has a role that means that they have an obligation to the citizens and to those who live in this country. If they are going to become members of parliament, then they have to make this commitment that they will understand and be trained in CEDAW and similarly if they're standing for local government. And we can't just keep saying, as we have acknowledged here today, that the law is enough because the law is certainly not enough, but the law is the beginning. It's the foundation of the recognition that women are human beings too and that women's rights must be affirmed in the law and then must be brought into operation by those parts of the polity who have the obligation to do that, such as the judiciary, the magistracy, the Crown Prosecution Service, members of parliament in passing laws and local government. Sean, when we have policies like austerity, when we have a crisis like the COVID pandemic, in both those instances, women are disproportionately affected. How do we ensure that a Bill of Rights for women operates in those quite grey and difficult areas of policy? So I think this is another example of where the laws are already existing, but they actually need to be enforced. So one of the things that is generally expected of the government and of public bodies such as councils is that they should have an equality impact assessment when they put together policy or legislation or even kind of public events. And that includes thinking about the impact of policies on women, the equality impact it will have on women. Now, this is something that is clearly not always being done or not being done in a rigorous and proper way. And I remember very clearly in the early 2010s, I think Yvette Cooper asked for a judicial review to look at the equality impact assessment on the austerity policies. She wanted to find out whether the government had really gone into the details of how austerity was going to impact women more than it was going to impact men, which it did. I think 86% of the cost of austerity in the early years came out of women's purses. And so if we actually 
use the tools that we have, such as equality impact assessments, to hold the government to account when it's very, very clear that policy decisions are having a bigger impact on women and disproportionately affecting women and reversing even women's equality then we could use that legislation, we could use these frameworks to act to challenge and to make sure these injustices don't happen. And again, I think as Justin says, it starts with the law. We have to have these legislative things in place in order to build change and in order to create practical change. But a thing like the Bill of Rights for Women is a way of really enforcing those ideas about equality impact, about recognising what needs to be done in order to protect women's equality and in order to, to prevent this rollback and this backlash that we are seeing. But at the same time, when we have the laws in place, we need to be asking why they're not being taken seriously, why they're not being used, why the frameworks that we have are failing to protect women's equality in crises such as austerity or in crises such as the coronavirus. Yeah, but I suppose at the moment, if the government takes action which disproportionately affects women, effectively, you've got no redress for that other than through the electoral process. A Bill of Rights for Women means that you have got some legal power to challenge what government has done. What's your thought on what Shana's just said, Jocelyn? On the austerity budget, yes, what Sean just said is really vital because the Fawcett Society did take a judicial review in 2010 in relation to that 2010 budget that was put forward by the coalition government under David Cameron. It was transparently obvious that that budget, as Sean said, impacted differentially in a really substantive ways against women and against women's rights, women's status and women's economic well-being. And yet when it went on judicial review, there really was the attitude, in my opinion, of court that heard it, that this was all a little bit trivial in a sense and it was all too late and that the government hadn't done a proper review, which it had not done. That was obvious because, number one, if it had done it and continued with the budget in any event, then it clearly was operating in a way that was detrimental to all the women in this country and therefore it was not upholding the commitment that it has as a government not to operate in a way that impacts so differentially against a particular group as it did. If it didn't do that review, which was, as I said, transparently obvious that it hadn't done it, well, then it should have been told categorically by the court, go back to square one and redo this budget. But no, there was a view that the budget was in train. In a way, what was being said was pretty trivial because in the end it was about women. And we all know that when women are operated against in a way that is detrimental to our economic well-being. Women sometimes do not survive, but many do by simply putting in the effort. For example, I know women who now are taking care of their grandchildren, their elderly parents, and still trying to maintain a paid job. And that's because that budget took away the local government grant that is supposed to sustain local government that provides services like care services, like childcare, like children's centres, like the Head Start program and so on. And because that government grant was taken away and came to an end absolutely in 2020, 
local government has not been able to provide those services. But women who've lost their jobs because of that austerity budget are now doing that work for nothing. And I think that's one of the problems. And I absolutely endorse what Sean said, that the government has to be held to account in terms of doing these equality impact assessments. I'm actually at the moment a member of a local government authority and was on a county council authority. And unfortunately, there does sometimes happen that there's a tick box approach to this idea of an equality impact assessment. And there need to be people who are committed and who know what they are doing. Final point, Sean, we have a government which at the moment is looking to turn back judgments made by courts, judgments made in accordance with the European Convention on Human Rights. We are not living in a time where government has an appetite to observe the existing legislation that we have around human rights, never mind introducing a Bill of Rights for women. Yes, I think this is a real problem. And it's the old amnesty line, human rights, you'll miss them when they're gone. <laughs> you know, this constant attack that we've been seeing on the, even the concepts of human rights for such a long time is really deeply concerning. And it's very concerning too in, in terms of leaving these kind of international structures that can have a bigger protection of our human rights. And it speaks again to this failure to ratify or, or bring into law issues around the Istanbul Convention. Human rights aren't something that you can pick and choose the ones you like. And women rights aren't things you can pick and choose the ones you like. The fact that we're not taking the convention seriously because we don't want to implement some of its recommendations because it goes against other policies around migration and around spending and austerity is really, really troubling. Human rights and women's rights are universal and we need to recognise them as such. And this idea that it's something that we can throw away or ignore or just take ourselves out of the international obligations and make our own sort of structure that we work within is very, very dangerous. And it leads to a very, very difficult path. We never think it's going to happen here. Things like rolling back human rights legislation or leaving courts or, or doing some of the things that around democracy and access that we're, we're seeing happen in this government. We never think it's going to happen here. And yet slowly and slowly, it seems to be happening. So not only do we need to fight for the protections of women's rights, but we need to be making a really bold and serious argument for human rights, because just to use that amnesty line again, because I do love it, we'll miss them when they're gone. Wise words from Sean Norris. And before that, Dr Jocelyn Scutt. You can find out more about the campaign at cdorinlaw.com. The Government Equalities Office told us they don't have plans at this time to draw up a bill incorporating CDOR. If you want to comment on this story, do join the conversation on Twitter. We're at bylinetimespod, or you can email goldbergradio at gmail.com. I'm Adrian Goldberg, and this has been the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscriptions to the monthly Byline Times newspaper. Find out how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.